Welcome everyone. My name is Tim Harris, pastor at Woodburn Baptist Church. Delighted to have you this morning. Uh, God bless you. All of you in the overflow, we love you so much. Welcome to you. Open your Bibles now and worship with us. Brian Ahern, Perry, Oklahoma, friends there. Uh, we love you so much. Pastor Brian, this is the message series that you and I talked about last year and you helped me uh, with ideas for this and resources. God bless you. Thank you for your, uh, your help and your, and your, your being my brother. Thank you. Uh, Isaiah chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. The sermon series is entitled Blind Spots. Blind Spots. We can't see what we can't see, and in our spiritual lives, sometimes what we can't see can be devastating to us. And this is one more example from Scripture of where God's people's blind spots make them blind to what God sees. It makes them overlook what are God's priorities, and we simply cannot, as God's people, not find important what God says is important. Isaiah chapter 1 is a shattering passage for those of us gathered to worship. Uh, it's a passage we must listen to. Perhaps it will open our eyes to the things we're blind to. Isaiah chapter 1, I'm going to pick up in verse 11. What makes you think I want all your sacrifices, says the Lord? I'm sick of your burnt offerings of rams and the fat of fattened cattle. I get no pleasure from the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to worship me, who asked you? Who asked you to parade through my courts with all your ceremony? Stop bringing me your meaningless gifts. The incense of your offerings disgusts me. As for your celebrations of the new moon and the Sabbath and your special days for fasting, they're all sinful and false. I want no more of your pious meetings. I hate your new moon celebrations and your annual festivals. They are a burden to me. I cannot stand them. When you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen, for your hands are covered with the blood of innocent victims. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, I will make them white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, I will make them white as wool. If you will only obey me, you will have plenty to eat. But, but if you turn away and refuse to listen, you will be devoured by the sword of your enemies. I, the Lord, have spoken. Some of you have seen this photograph before. I, I want you to see it again. It, it, it will do you good. Um, it's a photograph that won the Pulitzer Prize uh, a number of years ago. Pulitzer Prize winning photograph by a photographer by the name of Kevin Carter. Kevin Carter was taking photographs near a feeding station in Sudan. 
look. Taking photographs this day, he saw this little girl. She's a toddler. And she's... Um, she's trying to um, pull herself, crawling uh, to where the food is. That is a vulture behind her. It's a vulture waiting for her to stop moving. Kevin Carter's an amazing photographer, and, and he recognized uh, the importance of this moment. So he took 20 minutes framing the picture just right, adjusting his lenses. He took the picture and brought it home. He, he won the Pulitzer Prize for this photograph. The thing is, once he got home, he would show the photograph, and, and people would celebrate him with, with the award, but then people would inevitably ask, what happened to the girl? What happened to her? And Kevin Carter had to say, he didn't know. Because you see, he took 20 minutes taking the photograph and then he walked away. He walked away. And when people would say, what happened to the girl? He just had to say, I don't. I don't know. And people continued to ask, what happened to the girl? And he would have to say, I don't know. You see, Kevin Carter was raised in a Christian family. But when he saw this little girl crawling to get food, he didn't rush to pick her up. He walked away, and people would say, what happened to the girl? Did she live, or, or did she die? Did the, did the vulture get to her? And he had to say, I don't know. Three months after winning the Pulitzer Prize for taking this photograph, Kevin Carter took his own life. He committed suicide in his truck, and he simply put a note in the seat beside him and the note said, I'm really, really sorry. Really sorry. I guess we, we look at the picture, we think 20 minutes. 20 minutes just to get it in the frame. 20 minutes to focus on the little girl and to get the vulture in the background just right. 20 minutes to adjust your lenses. 20 minutes and then you walk away? A, a man who's raised in the church, a, a man who's raised a, a Christian, what happens to a man's heart? What happens to a man's eye so that he can look at this for 20 minutes and never see the girl? I mean, I know he saw her. He saw her well enough to take her picture, but he didn't see her well enough to go pick her up. What, what happens to a Christian heart that you can see and not see? Because honestly, this is the question that this passage raises. It's the question that God himself raises of his people. And the basic question is, where are you? What are you doing? 
And the simple answer is, well, they're having church. They're having church. I mean, in the scripture, they're having church, and they're having it very well. I mean, honestly, if this is the only thing that's important to you, coming together and singing and worshiping, we can have this down pretty well. We can make this the show of all shows, and most of the time, God's people do it pretty well. We can do church like nobody's business, and and this is especially what God is trying to point out here. God gives a a blistering evaluation of the worship service. It's not exactly what the people would have expected to hear from him. I mean, just read the passage. You can tell from what God says here that, that the worship at the temple is amazing. It's outstanding. Probably some of the biggest crowds they've ever had. You cannot even imagine the the crowds and the blood that flows from the sacrifices. Remember, there's not a lot of money in the Old Testament day. They brought the only thing of worth to them, which would be livestock. They brought livestock, and the livestock would literally be slaughtered in the worship service. It was part of the way they worshiped, and honestly, it's What the Old Testament says you bring, you bring an offering, and the offering would be a sacrifice, and at the temple, the blood would flow. The blood would flow in worship, and the people would sing, and they would bring wonderful, wonderful gifts of incense. And what does God say about it? What does God say? You would think that God would be pleased. Isn't that the point? Isn't that the point when we gather like this? I mean, this isn't for us. We say that all the time. It's not for us. This is for God. And this morning, we've given it our best. We've planned. We've we've gathered. We've prayed. We've sang. And we just imagine that somehow God must be pleased with it. I mean, after all, what does God want? What more could he want? We've come. We've sang. We're reading the Bible. We're praying. What does God want? It it is the question to ask. It's always the question to ask. Because however you worship and whatever you want to call worship, understand, if your worshiping doesn't make you begin to want the things that God wants, then your worship is false. Your worship is empty. If in your coming before God Sunday after Sunday, if you don't begin to develop a heart like God's, then there's something profoundly wrong, something profoundly and painfully wrong with your worship. Do you understand? This very passage might be a blistering evaluation of our worship. Because if it turns out, after all of our Sundays, if it turns out that we don't begin to care about the things that God cares about, then it's all for nothing. It's false. And God says, you're making me tired. That's what the scripture says. You're making me tired. Get out of my face, God says. Your pious meetings, I, I hate them. That's God speaking. Your worship's a burden to me. I can't stand it. That's God speaking. So, So what does he want? 
what does he want from us? If it's not just our Sunday morning, if it's not just our singing and our praising, what does he want? It's, it's plain. It's so plain. And maybe that's why it's we ourselves who, who want to make it difficult. Maybe it's we ourselves who want to muddy this water so that we can't see what is plain in God's word. The first thing God wants is repentance. God wants repentance. Coming before God for us is always about repentance. We'll never get past that. I I love the gospel. I love the good news of of forgiveness for my sins through the grace of Jesus. I I love that. But understand, it always continues to have to do with, with my repentance. I must turn from my sin, which means I have to be willing to see my sin. Of all the blind spots that I can talk about, you understand, the largest blind spot for me and for you is typically our own sin. Now the funny thing is, I can see your sin from where I'm standing. If we filled the room with fog, I could still see your sin and you can see mine. But we're not very good at seeing our own sin. We can see the sins of our parents. We can see the sins of our kids. We can see others, but we don't see our own sin very well. And because we don't see it, we don't repent. We don't repent. When you lift up your hands in prayer, God says, I will not look. God says, when you lift up your hands in prayer, I will not look. Though you offer many prayers, I will not listen. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your evil deeds out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Come now, let's settle this, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be white as snow. God wants repentance. God wants repentance. That means you don't come and confess other people's sins. It means you come and you confess your own sins. God makes it very, very plain. There are things you must stop doing and things you must start doing. Do you understand? When you come before God, you need a to-do list and you need a to-don't list. Things you're going to stop doing and things you're going to start doing. Do you understand? God cares very, very much about how we live our lives. Now, we're not talking about earning salvation. There is no way to earn what God promises here. Though my sins are like scarlet, they should be white as snow. That's God's free gift. You understand that? I can't earn that. And it's not that I earn that forgiveness by somehow doing right. That's not what God is saying here. But when I turn from my sins, it's a real turning Which means after that point of coming before God and having my sins washed clean, once I do that, you understand, my feet are on a different path. I'm not going to continue to walk in that sin. There's a turning from it. Did you understand? It's not so much that that I somehow earn God's forgiveness by doing what is right. It's simply that doing what is right is the fruit of repentance, When my repentance, when my confession is genuine, there's going to be a life change. And that life change involves a whole lot more than simply showing up at church whenever they open the doors and singing and praying. God says, you're wearing me out with that. 
Get out of my face, God says. Get your wickedness out of my face. I'm not going to look at your sin. I'm not going to. I don't have to. Do you understand? God's purpose from the very beginning is to save us from our sins. Thou shalt call his name Jesus, the angel said, for he shall save his people from their sins. God's giant purpose for the world is to remove everything that destroys, and sin is that which destroys us. It's that which separates us from God. Therefore, God's purpose is always to separate us from our sins. It is sin that harms. It is sin that destroys. And God is fiercely opposed to everything that harms in his creation. He's separating us from our sins. Now, ideally, that separation, that that sanctification happens when we come to him with repentance, genuine repentance, confessing our sins, agreeing with God about the situation of our hearts, allowing him to wash us and make us clean. Ideally, The sanctification happens when we cooperate with the action of grace in our hearts. Ideally, we're separated from our sins by by coming before God and allowing him to wash us and make us clean. Ideally, it happens that way. But make no mistake, it's still going to happen. God is still going to be victorious over sin in the world. God is still going to be triumphant in your life even. And if you're not going to come before him and allow him to sanctify you by your repentance and confession and by the action of his grace in your heart, then understand he'll still separate you from your sin by his discipline, by his wrath. It's what the scripture says. He wants repentance. He wants repentance. Don't come in here on Sunday wagging that tongue, singing praises to God. When you've wagged your tongue all week long in gossip, when you've used that same tongue to to curse your neighbors and, and your friends, do you understand that God pays attention to your life? He he pays attention. He's not just looking at you when you come on Sunday all dressed up. Do you understand? He knows how you treat people, and he cares how you treat people. God wants repentance, always repentance. But it goes further than that. Notice what the scripture says. God loves justice. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. That word there in verse 17, the word is justice. I don't even know how you think of that word. I don't don't know how you define it. Glenn Beck, a a conservative radio host, uh, often rails against justice. He says if you're in a church where the pastor preaches on justice, find another church. I'm thinking, who are you? What are you thinking? What does he think that the Bible's all about if it's not about justice? I'm not speaking politically here. I'm not trying to to draw a straight line from the Bible to a particular political party. I don't think that can be done. It can't be done. What we must do is draw a straight line from the Bible to our lives. That's what God requires. And God says, you and I, we're supposed to love justice. 
The word justice, the concept of justice is repeated in Scripture over and over and over. There are over 800 references to our obligation to seek justice for others. Over 800 references to that. So I would say if you're in a church and the preacher doesn't ever mention justice, then you need to find another church. It's all through the Bible. You can't miss it. You can't miss it. This is one of God's priorities. God wants repentance from us, and God wants justice. Justice. Now, what is that? You're thinking right now about Judge Judy or Judge Wapner, and you're trying to figure out how that all connects. What what is the justice that that God requires? First off, understand that, that, that justice is one of God's essential attributes. We would all have to affirm that God is just. God is just. He is a just God. From cover to cover in Scripture, that that is is a fundamental revelation of the character of God. He's just. He's just. That means that justice is inseparable from the gospel. Understand? It's a fundamental characteristic of God in his nature. He is a just God. That means that he is perfect in everything that he does perfect. It means that God is good, but God's goodness is combined with with, with impartiality. God is no respecter of persons, which means that justice for God means that everybody receives the same goodness from God. Everyone receives the same offer of salvation. The rain falls on the just and the unjust, Scripture says, because God alone is just. His goodness is always paired with his impartiality. God doesn't love the United United States more than he loves all the other nations of the world. God doesn't love our children more than all of the children of the world. Do you understand? Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. Everyone is the same to God, and God offers the same justice. God offers the same blessings, the same goodness. God alone is just which means he wants everybody to receive the the same kind of fairness, the same kind of respect. Everyone is entitled to the same basic, basic necessities of life. God loves people. God is just, and God loves justice. And over and over and over in Scripture, it says that if we are going to belong to this God, then we have to share in his passion for justice means our hearts are going to break for the things that break God's heart. It means that when we see injustice, we should be outraged in the same way that God is outraged whenever people are mistreated. Did you understand? God is outraged when people are mistreated. God is outraged by starvation. God is outraged by sickness and death. God is outraged, outraged when people are taken advantage of. God loves justice. And God says, your worship, I'm tired of it. You're singing, you're praying. I'm not going to listen. I'm not going to look. You're going to have to get out of my face with your evil ways. Go learn to do good. Go seek justice. Seek justice. God wants people to be treated fairly. God wants people to be treated with the same love, the same respect. That means that's what God wants from us. 
That's what God wants from us. Wash yourselves and be clean. Get your sins out of my sight. Give up your evil ways. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Help the oppressed. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. That verse 17, that's a great verse. Look at the action words. Learn, seek, help, defend, fight. Notice how those action words go from, from, uh, from a level of sort of passive learning all the way to the, to the action verb fight. There is this progression in that verse. It's a progression that, that leads us to a very fierce kind of action. In other words, our concern for justice, our concern for other people has to go beyond just praying. It has to go beyond just thinking. It has to go beyond just you know, getting tears in our eyes when the compassion commercial comes on television. You understand? It goes down to the word fight. You gotta start fighting for other people. You, you, you gotta defend people. That, that word there in 17, help, help the oppressed, actually that's not a good translation. What that word says, what that verse says right there is actually you've gotta go, you have to go confront the oppressor. That's what Isaiah actually says. You gotta go, go get in the face of the one who's doing the injustice, who, who is actually causing the, the oppression. You've gotta go get in that person's face and, and stop it. This is what God is saying, this is what he wants. Instead of the Sunday morning as usual, God wants people who have repented and had their sins washed clean by the grace of Jesus. He wants those people turned loose in the world and passionate for the, for the justice of others passionate for the case of the orphan and for the plight of the widow. God wants people who are passionate for other people. Do you understand? Young, young people, as you think about God's purpose, God's will for your life, do you understand that I can sum it up for you in one word? The purpose of your life in one word. you understand? That word is others. Others. Others do not exist for you. You exist for others. God's purpose for us is that we would do his work in the world. And his work in the world is to ensure justice for everyone, every nation, every single person. Often in scripture, you see this orphans and widows put together. You ever notice that? Always. If you find an orphan, there will be a widow in scripture. Orphans and widows. Defend the cause of orphans. Fight for the rights of widows. Why are those two always put together in scripture? Any ideas? Why orphans and widows? Always in the same verse. Always right together. Yeah, they're helpless. Yeah, in all society, they're the helpless ones, primarily because they've lost their place in families. God creates people for families. God creates children for families. And so when a child loses its place in the family, it, it, it's, it's very vulnerable. It's devastating. And when a woman loses her place in the family, when she loses her, her husband, it, it, it's devastating. And in the ancient world, they were the most vulnerable, most desperate of all. If you didn't have your family, if you've lost your place in community, then there's no help for you. Widows and orphans always put together in Scripture because they're the most vulnerable. 
But understand, there's also this beautiful way when you say widows and orphans, you're sort of including everybody in the sense that you're talking about youngest to oldest. Youngest to oldest, from the least to the greatest, the smallest to, to the greatest. You understand, widows and orphans, it has this way of sort of bringing in everybody. It's definitely talking about the most vulnerable but it also has a way of just describing the whole human family, from the little ones to the older ones, the widows and the orphans, you take care of, of all of them. In our day and age, I would say that, that, that the same idea is captured in the phrase, from womb to tomb. You understand? God loves people, and God loves people from womb to tomb, the, the orphans and the widows. But beyond orphans, in our day, in our culture, it's even the unborn. Even the unborn. Do you understand? There's nothing more helpless than an unborn child in its mother's womb. Nothing more helpless. And, and there's no question that, that one day our children, our grandchildren, will turn around and look at the incredible uh, abortion, the incredible abortion numbers of our generation and ask, where were you? What were you thinking? How could the church stand by and simply let unborn children be, be taken out of their mother's womb? Do you understand the evil of that? Do you understand that? There must be justice even for the unborn. They have a right to life. But, but, but even beyond that, do you understand? It doesn't stop there. Often some people who are so passionate about the cause against abortion, they simply don't, don't seem to care about the quality of life from that point on. God cares. God cares about children in poverty. God still cares about orphans. And orphans don't just live in other countries. Do you understand? I'll never forget the orphans of Honduras that we visited this past spring. They, they were amazing. So very hungry for love, so very hungry for, for the love of, of adults. They, they just don't have any adults. They live in an orphanage. Kelly and Tisha only have so many arms. So when you step foot on that orphanage, you know the very first thing that happens, whether you ask for it or not? It's like being attacked by tree frogs. They just leap on you. They just leap. Now, looking at me, you're thinking, Brother Tim, you're a pretty strong man. I bet you can. No, I'm telling you, I'm not. I'm not. The first kid comes. I mean, he's airborne, pff, coming for me because they leap over each other. So this kid leaps over other children and lands in my arms, and I have one, and I think, thank you, Lord, that I'm still standing up. And then I look over here, and here comes another one. Another kid, airborne, coming into my arms, and I manage to catch him. People, I'm a wimp. I can't do this anymore. Now I'm holding two kids, and then all of a sudden, here comes a third one. And he's like, he's the size of Paul Sandlin. Gigantic kid, Paul. Gigantic kid comes, and he's just airborne coming at me. And it's just... They do anything, anything to land in your arms. Understand, they would do anything to land in your arms. Now, you think that's okay? You think it's okay that we're all gathered here in church knowing that there are children out there who do anything to land in your arms? Do you understand? This is what God is saying in this passage. 
How can you think that coming to church is enough when there are children out there who would do anything to be in your arms? I know in the United States, we don't see orphans like that. We do have a better system. Thank God for that. It's not perfect. But we have a better system of caring for orphans. But do you understand, there are still so many children who would love to be in your family. Why don't you foster them? Why don't you adopt? I mean, come on, you've got an extra bedroom, don't you? God has blessed you enough where you can live well. Some of you have been praying about, uh, about adopting. I don't know who you are, but this is your sign. This is what you've been waiting for. Adopt. How can you not? How can more of us not do that? How can we not open our own arms to the orphans? The Bible says we've got to do that. We've got to defend them. Children were created for families. You've got a family, don't you? God cares, God is just, and God is outraged when people are mistreated. God is outraged when people suffer. But God's people aren't outraged. And that is an outrage. Pastor from North Dakota I've been sponsoring a, a child from Compassion International for years, years. Same little girl. And she had reached the age of 10 years old. She was 10. And the pastor had the opportunity to go on a mission trip to Ethiopia, which is where the little girl was from. And he arranged with Compassion International to go meet his child, the girl that he had sponsored for all of those years. And they managed to do it. They managed for him to go to that village and go meet his little girl. He was paired with a guide who, who knew the village and, and knew the language. And so the pastor walked with the guide and, and they went to this little house in a village, a little mud house. It, it had one room. House had one room. The pastor came in and, and he met the girl's mother and he met the little girl. He loved her at the sight of her just loved her. He'd been praying for her for years and supporting her. And she had clothes because of him, and she had food because of him, and he was so delighted to meet her. As they were talking, though, others started coming into the house, and it became plain that, that, that this house, this one-room house, was not just her house. This was the tavern in this village. And this little girl's mother was, was the barmaid. And it was horrible. People began coming into this one room and, and drinking. And then women were brought in. And all sorts of things began to unfold. And the guide turned around to the pastor and said, we must leave now. It's not safe. And so the pastor said, um, are we in danger? And the guide said, yes, we will be in danger. We must leave. It's not safe. And the pastor looked at the little girl and said, if it's not safe for us, it's not safe for her. What do you mean it's not safe? And the guide said, I mean everything that you think it means. It's not safe. And he said, what about her? And the guide said, it's not safe, but this is her home. 
And so the pastor began to leave, and, and the little girl was, was left there in the middle of the house. And, and walking out, he said to the guy, what's she going to do? What is she going to do? And the guide said, we've taught all the children in the village, we've taught all of them, that whenever they're in danger, they should scream and run to the church. They know that the church is safe. They know that the church is a sanctuary. She knows that if she's ever in danger, she should scream and run to the church. That's not good enough. That's not good enough. If we know, if we know that there are people suffering out there, if we know that there's a child starving in the dirt, if we know that there are children without families, if we know that there are poor people starving and suffering, if we know that there are sick, if we know that they're out there, it's not enough for us to wait for them to come running to us screaming. That's not good enough. We know they're out there. I say we run screaming to them. We run screaming to them. Read the Bible. There is not a single verse that says that the world should come to church. Not a single verse that says that they need to come to church. But there is a great commission that commands that the church go to the world. How do we not see? How do we not see? There's a world in need people all around you. Who do you help? Who do you go to? Who do you rescue? What are you doing to make sure that other people have the same blessings, the same benefits you have? Well, what are you doing? Do you think that, that coming to church is really what satisfies the Lord? Absolutely, come to church. Repent of your sins. Let Him make you new. Let Him make you clean. But then understand, He's going to send you back out. There's a world out there that God loves, God cares for. And if in our worship, Sunday after Sunday, we don't begin to love the world like God loves the world, then there's something very wrong with our worship. Something very wrong with our worship. pray. Jesus, we just feel so disconnected, so far away. Lord, we know sometimes when we throw out our food scraps that there are children starving in India, Lord, but we don't know how to help them. 
we don't know always what to do, Lord. God, I pray that it would begin just by opening our eyes, Lord. There are children in need around us, too. There's a neighborhood in Woodburn that never, ever darkens the doors of this church, Lord. There are children in the shadow of our steeple who are suffering. Lord, Lord, there are people all around us, and some of us, Lord, we are called to go. We know we're called to go and, and, and called to volunteer and called to give and called to be foster parents and, and called to adopt, Lord. We, we know we are. We just haven't gotten around to it yet. God, help us to understand while we continue to piddle around, while we continue to worship and sing and pray, help us understand that people die. They go to hell. And it is an outrage. Lord Jesus, we know that your great heart breaks for the suffering of the world. So, Lord Jesus, as we become more like you, may we have hearts like yours, a heart that breaks for others. Teach us, Lord, how to care. And then teach us how, Lord, by your grace and by your strength, to do your work in the world. Send us out from this place, Lord to do your work in the world. We pray these things in the name and in the justice of Christ.